and the focus of our minds. Help us to see you now through your word, Lord. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. We're going to read all the way through verse 5. I think we're only going to get to the end of chapter 2. And that's, I've got more notes, but I think that's where we're going to end up. Just, it's one of those... One of those days, one of those sermons where there is so much to say and so little to say all at the same time because the, the word of God speaks for itself. Indeed, I was reading through uh, the book again this week, Thessalonians again this week, First Thessalonians. And, and as I read, I was struck by the fact that I could literally just read this out loud and you would hear my heart as a pastor at Sovereign Grace at this church specifically. At this church dealing with you, this would be my heart's cry. What Paul expresses here is very much in line with the way I feel about here. And, and I want you to understand that's unique to you. It hasn't been that way at other churches. I haven't felt that way at other churches. This is a unique expression for you. So that's why I say this sermon might take two, two weeks. Um, but let's dive in and read chapter 2, verse 17 through 3, verse 5. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming. What is it? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Before, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we are destined for this. For we were with you. We kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, I could bear it no longer. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So Paul writes this letter to them, and you know the story. We've talked about it multiple weeks now, that the Thessalonian church started, and then Paul and Silas had to run away and hide, and they, they flee by night to get away. They barely make it out of the city before the mob comes, and, they, and the mob grabs Jason and drags him before the governing officials, and he's forced to pay a fine for being Christian. He's forced to pay a security for being Christian. So we have this 
government that is oppressive to them. We have a mob rule that is dictating the, the, the motions and activities of the government. And we have Paul who has had to flee uh, prior to when he wanted to. He's had to run away. And he has deep affection for these Thessalonians. And this is what's wild about the Thessalonians. It, it doesn't seem like anything miraculous happens. There's no stories of angels coming down and singing. There's a prison break that happens in the previous chapter in Acts, in Philippi. And there's some miraculous stuff that happens in Berea, where they go next. But they're, the Thessalonican church just seems like a church of people who just kind of believe. And there's no, uh, there's no wild things happening. There's no massive crowd. They don't have the crowd of First Corinthians, of the Corinthian church, that church that's huge and debauched in many places. They don't have the crowd of Jerusalem. Uh, instead, they've got a group of people who genuinely believe and love each other And that group turned their world upside down. Turned their world upside down by being quiet. By talking about Jesus to their neighbors. By loving people. That's how they did it. They turned everything upside down simply by being Christian. Likewise, I feel like that's what we see in our lives. Everything goes haywire and crazy when we start to just act like Jesus. And it seems crazy. The Thessalonians reserved a special place in Paul's heart. Notice what he says. He says, we were torn away from you, literally ripped from you, as though he didn't want to go. There was no need for him to run away. He, he didn't want to hide. He wanted to stay were it not for the fact that they were going to try and take him by force and kill him, likely lock him up or kill him, Paul would have stuck around in Thessalonica. He says we were torn away. Now notice that Paul, when he says this, believes that they'll be reunited in their break. He says, I was torn away for you, from you for a short time. For a short time, I was torn from you. I was torn away, ripped from your midst for a short time. Paul believes that he is going to be reunited with them. And I think there's a principle that we can grab as Christians here because Paul's not reunited with them for a long time in Acts. He's not. He's, he's away from them. Indeed, he, he doesn't go back to Thessalonica. He sends Timothy. And he's unable to get there. Then he writes to them, I, I, I know that I'm only torn away from you for a short time. This is a principle we can grab as Christians that we live this life in recognition that there's a resurrection. That we are resurrected. That there's something more. And that we will see believers, again, we will be united with believers Again, in heaven, in the heavenly chorus, praising the Lord God Almighty for eternity, we will be united with one another. Again, this is a short time. There's a principle we can grab here. 
that this, the walking alone here that we sometimes feel, that desperate need for community that we sometimes feel, will be answered either on this earth or in the next one. We will be with each other again. Though for a short time Paul is torn away, he can, he can have the confidence that he is going to see them again, that he is going to be united with them again, that he is going to worship with them again. Remember Psalm 42, on those days when you're depressed and it seems like you're all by yourself. Remember Psalm 30, 42 when he says, why are you downcast on my soul? And then he says, I remember when I would go before the Lord and worship with the throng of people. Remember what he's telling you there? He's, he's telling you to grab hold of those memories where you worship the Lord with the community in confidence that you are going to do that again. Christians live with a view to resurrected life. Always. They, they live with an understanding that all things will be restored. All relationships in life will be restored. We live separate from the world. We live with an eye towards reuniting and resurrection. All our distances from each other are temporary in this life. We had a glimpse of this in 2020 when the church is set, shut down. Our church shut down for a month. That's it. And I remember talking to Andrew and going, hey, we're never doing that again. I will have, I will have service in my front yard behind plexiglass if I have to. But we are never shutting down for a month of no worship again. I did more crisis counseling in one month than I had done in 14 years of ministry prior. Um, more calling people, talking them down from the ledge, talking them off things in one month. And why? Because we need each other. And we need to see each other. We need to be around each other. We need to actually know each other. And if, if you're not there, you know how it is. When you're not there for a time, like you don't, you don't realize... Until you come back and you, and you go, oh man, I've been gone and it's, I've been depressed. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, this feels good. But you don't realize how, how hard it is to be away. And so Paul here talks about, he's torn away but for a short time. And I've felt that before. I felt this next phrase too. In person, not in heart. We were torn away in person, not in heart. My, my heart is with you. This is, where, this is where my heart is with you guys. Like, I know you. You know me. And my heart is with you. And when you're not here, when I don't see you or hear from you, I'm not calling you because I'm annoying. And I'm not texting you because I'm trying to get a hold of you. I'm calling you because you're on my mind and you're in my heart and I'm, I'm constantly thinking about you. And I know that that's not just me. I know that you do the same. When I'm gone, I get stuff from you guys. <clears throat> or when I'm quiet, don't think I don't notice. I notice and I'm grateful for it. 
when I'm quiet and haven't texted anybody for a while, you guys start texting me. And I, I am grateful for it. Because I notice. Because our hearts are intertwined. And he says, he says here this, this phrase, like, I'm with you in heart, even though with my body I can't be. Like, even if I'm face to face, I'm gone. I'm, I'm with you in heart. And he says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Oh, man. We longed eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. I, I mean, we can attest to that. I can attest to that. That experience, I'm serious, that that experience in 2020 made me go never again. Never again. Ever. Never I long so much to see you face to face. I want to be around you all the time. And I just want to be clear. The personal testimony side of this sermon is that this isn't for every church. This is for you, Sovereign Grace Fellowship. That's the personal testimony side. I don't long to be around every other church. I don't. In fact, you hear me preach at other churches, you'll be like, man, he is angry. <laughs> and I don't know why that is. I don't know why I can be myself here and loving here and tender and soft-hearted here. But in other places, I, don't, like, I feel like I want to throw the pulpit. Like, I'm so filled with something. I don't, indignation, I don't know. I want to make it sound good. So let's call it righteous indignation. Let's say that that's what it is. Um, but here, you have my heart, you have my, you have my, my mind, you have, you have what I am, and I long to be with you, and I understand what Paul is saying. When he says, I long, I eagerly want to be around you. I honestly, genuinely like you in my house. And like I said two weeks ago, I'm an introvert. And I like having you around. I know I enjoy you. I, I want you around. That's what Paul is getting at here. And he says, I wanted to come to you. I, Paul, multiple times wanted to come to you. That's what Paul says. He says, I long to come to you. I long to be with you. I long to be around you. And multiple times I tried to come to you, but I was hindered by Satan. Now that, that should make you pause. I was hindered by Satan. I couldn't get there by Satan. Satan was in the way. The accuser was in the way. Now, I want to pause here. He says Satan hindered us. Paul blames Satan. This is, there's a sense in which Satan is actively working against us. There's a sense in which he does actively work against us. And I want to I wanna just take a minute to go through several passages of Scripture that deal with our adversary, who is real and who is active, but who, before we deal with these passages, I want you to understand, is a dog on a leash. That's all he is. He can bark. He can scare. But he's a dog on a leash. There is no more passage more beautifully depicting 
the way God handles him than the book of Job. In which you see that the adversary cannot talk until God talks. He cannot do what God does not allow. He cannot step beyond what God has called, what God has ordained to happen. So if you want comfort in understanding the limitations of the adversary, read Job. But we're going to look at some passages primarily in the New Testament that deal with it. So first one is Romans 6, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Paul, at the end of the book of Romans, is writing to a group of people who are about to see massive persecution, and they see it coming. They see it coming. Perhaps there were some elections, and there were some people put in power that they know do not have the best intentions. They see these things. They see it coming. They see this coming. And Paul writes them, Do not be afraid. After 16 chapters of the systematic theology of the Bible, that's what Romans kind of is. It's, it's Paul's understanding of theology. And in chapter 16, at the very end of the book, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. It's a great verse for you to memorize and to keep in the back of your mind and in your head. But just look at it for a minute. The God of peace, peace, not war, peace, not turmoil, peace, not anxiety. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. This is a direct reference to Genesis 3.15. That the head of the serpent would be crushed. That he would that he would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and that the serpent would bruise the seed of the woman's heel, and the, and the, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the snake. This is the, the picture of redemption. It's the same one Jesus gives us when he says, when I am lifted up, I will call all to myself. And indeed, he says salvation is found in him being lifted up on the cross. Uh, same image that Moses gives us in the Old Testament when he kills the serpent and holds it up on a cross for all to see that they would be saved from the death that was plaguing them. So we have here this picture of God saying, I am going to crush Satan completely. In Romans 16, he's assuring Christians, God wins. God will soon crush Satan. And then look at what he says, underneath your feet. Underneath your feet. God does it. God crushes Satan. God destroys the adversary. God ends the wars. God brings the peace under your feet. He uses your feet to conquer the adversary. So one of the first things we can see in Romans 16 is that you have a role to play in the war against the adversary. Indeed, remember, always remember, when Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not overcome it. Gates are defensive. You're on offense. You're not on defense. You're on offense. God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. 
You are advancing, not retreating. We are an advancing group. He uses your feet. You are in the battle. Second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, we see, what, we see some of the ways Satan acts. He, he tempts you through your lack of self-control. He says, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, look, get married if you're having trouble controlling your lusts. This is what he says. Um, you can go read chapter 7. It's a weird chapter. It's a fun chapter. I'd be happy to talk to you about it over lunch. But the idea is that if you're having trouble with this area, go ahead and get married. And it's a very logical thing. And he says, it's because of your lack of self-control that the adversary is going to try to tempt you. He's going to try to tempt you with your lack of self-control. So let's see that little snippet there in 1 Corinthians 7.5. In fact, just for the sake of you hearing it from Paul, let's go back and read that. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. He says, do not deprive one another except, <clears throat> except by agreement. This is talking about in the marriage covenant. Except by agreement for, for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And he goes on to talk about marriage and uh, getting married, wishing that you would remain unmarried if you don't uh, need to be married but wishing that you would remain unmarried as he was and, and focus entirely on the gospel. But he says, because of your lack of self-control, there's some parameters here in marriage. And he says, Did, Satan wants to tempt you because you can't control yourself. So, how do we fight him? Discipline. Discipline. Working hard to become disciplined. And discipline in the sense of working. Not discipline in the sense of correction. Discipline in the sense of working. So we see that he says Satan tempts you because of your lack of self-control. And he tries to attack your marriage and he tries to attack your purity. So be disciplined to war against him. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11. Unity of forgiveness keeps us from being outwitted, that's the word used in the passage, by Satan. And he's dealing primarily with gossip and transparency in that passage in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. And so he says, we, when we forgive others, if you forgive somebody else, then I should not hold a grudge on your behalf on that other person. We forgive, we are united in our forgiveness of others. So we are united in our forgiveness of others. That is a beautiful and powerful picture of the church. When we are united in our forgiveness to those who have wronged us as a corporate body, we are literally fighting off the adversary who would like nothing more than to use one person's root of bitterness to drive the rest of the community apart. And when we are unified in our forgiveness of others and our understanding of forgiveness in our, in our own lives, when we are unified in that, we are literally fighting against the adversary. We are finding victory over him. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 17, Satan disguises himself 
as an angel of light. He disguises himself as something good. And so do false prophets and false teachers and false leaders in churches and false authors and people who write heretical things. They disguise themselves as something good. Indeed, they say this is a good thing and they argue for goodness there in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 17. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, which we read this morning, he tries to tempt people to leave the faith. That the work would all be in vain because everybody leaves the faith. They don't stick with it. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, we know this passage well. It's the one where Paul says, I was given a messenger from Satan, a thorn in the flesh. So get this, Satan has messengers and they're thorns. They hurt. They're bothersome. He has messengers and they're thorns. Now there's a lot of speculation as to whether or not these messengers were people. Um, whether or not Paul was like, these people drive me nuts. I don't, could have been. More than likely, uh, most scholars tend to think that this was a literal physical ailment. That Paul asked God to take it away from him over and over and over, that he would be free from it. And God says what? My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul deals with this thorn in the flesh his entire ministry life. Satan evidently has messengers and they are thorns. See, Paul wants us to be aware that his process to come back to them, to see them face to face, has been hindered by the adversary. And I think there's something we can grab here. After reading those passages and seeing kind of the way the adversary works and knowing that he works through subterfuge and he works through sabotage, he doesn't work through active means. He has no power. What does it say in Colossians that he's been disarmed? He's been disarmed. He has no power. In First Peter, he's been, he's been, everything's been taken away from him. He doesn't have any authority. So we know this so we can, we can be confident. And so what Paul wants to urge us towards is to recognize that he is active and, and one of his chief means of subterfuge is to separate us. It's one of his chief means is to separate us. So when you have a brother or sister that's been separated from the community, who's been distant from the community, who's, who you're watching get distant, go after them. Go after them as you can. As you can. As you're able Text them. Tell them you miss them. Tell them you're. Tell them you're. If you ever have the urge to come to me, and say, "Hey, what's going on with so and so?" You know my answer. Why don't you call them and find out? Right? Like that's that's going to happen. When I see people who ask about you, my answer to them: Why don't you call them and find out? I may know. I may know everything. Most of the time, I do. I'm not going to tell. I'm going to be like you. You should call them. They would like to hear from you. You're part of the body. I'm part of the body. We need to be together. An arm that is displaced from the shoulder is useless. 
Likewise, we are together the body. You need to be around. You need to see each other. You need to talk to each other. You need to communicate. You need to connect. Because one of the things Satan tries to do is separate, divide, and spread us out. And that's what Paul is dealing with here. He's going, I've tried to come to you multiple times and I can't because I've been hindered by the adversary, by Satan. Paul wants to gather with the Thessalonians because he knows there's a battle. Because he knows it's hard. And because he knows we win if we're together. He knows we win if we're together. Verse 19. And then he gives you his reason why. Why? Why so extreme? And this is the part of the sermon that is, I'm, this is almost just personal testimony for me. Why do I love showing up with you guys? Why do I love coming together with you? Why do I love my house being filled with you in my home? Why do I love being here on Sunday morning? Look at this. For what is our hope? or our joy, or our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? Paul draws hope from the steadfastness of the Thessalonians. He knows their struggles. He knows their their pains. He knows what they've been going through. And he looks at them and he goes, they're still faithful. They're still faithful. There's nothing in this book about them going into heresy. There's nothing in here about, you guys need to stop arguing with each other. There's nothing in here about that. There's nothing, I mean, we're reading 1 Corinthians on Thursdays, and that's not happening here. No. No, he knows their struggles. He knows their depressions and their, their hurts. And he knows what's going on with them. And he loves them and he has such hope from them like there's it's it's one of those things like we said last week it works the word of god works it does what it's supposed to and he can draw such hope and i draw such hope from watching you grow and from being a part of your walk like i it's so beautiful and profound to love a congregation this way And I haven't always. I've always done it here at Sovereign Grace. I've been at other churches and I haven't always had this affection. This is unique. And it's the same affection described here in Thessalonians. Oh, there's a general affection for the church. Don't get me wrong. God has borne up in the heart of men a desire for the community of faith to grow and and the church universal to be strong and powerful. But this, this description here, when he says you are hope. He's looking at them going, I have hope because of you. I have hope because I see that guy that was in our congregation or that lady that was in our congregation who was depressed, who's come out of it. I have hope because I watched as this one person drifted over here and this whole crowd of people sent barrages of arrow texts at that person. I have hope because this person over here needed a meal and I didn't even know about it. And a bunch of people took care of it. I have hope because your neighbors tell me, yeah, I've, yeah, so-and-so has talked to me about the Lord, yeah, dozens of times. It's, yeah, he's, he goes to your church, right? Yeah, he won't stop talking about it. I have hope because 
they see you, the world sees you and takes delight and sees that you're different. Paul says to them, you are our hope. You're our hope. Like we watch you struggle and we see you come out of it and we go, it works. It's not just me. I'm not just some looney tune off to the edge. This matters and it works. I have hope. What is our hope and our joy? Our joy, it's based on the truth that there's future. It's based on the truth. Joy here is based on the idea that there is a future. What's our joy in life? What's coming in life? Joy. This joy is bound up all through the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's bound up in the idea that there's a resurrection from the dead and a life beyond this one. And that we get to do it together. That we get to be together. That we get to delight in each other. This is joy based on future truth of life. Joy as a parent with a child. Paul in the previous passage talked about himself as a mother and a father to them. You've been like, I've nurtured you like a mother and I have exhorted you like a father. I've been with you. I have longed for you. You are mine. You are mine. This is our joy, like a parent with a child. Joy. And then finally here, he gives us the crown of boasting. What is our crown of boasting? It's a weird phrase because we tend to think of boasting as wrong all the time. And yet, there's something profound here that is true. What is our crown of pride, our proof that we have a crown, our pride and joy? My, uh, my Uncle Melvin used to carry around a picture of the dish detergent, crown, uh, pride and joy. The dish detergent and soap. Carry a picture around and he'd start talking to you and he'd be like, you want to see my pride and joy? You want to see my pride and joy? I've got a picture of my pride and joy. And he'd pull it out and go, there it is, pride and joy. And everybody would go, ha, 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 ha. But then he'd pray for you. And then he'd call somebody else across the country and pray for them. And then he'd pray for the next person. And he had this pride and joy in the Christian community that was infectious. It was infectious. And he would constantly lay these things down. Pride. That there was some pride and and a sense of boasting before the Lord because of the Thessalonians. And I got to tell you, when I come before the Lord... I'm going to do the same thing with you. Just be prepared that when we stand before God, I'm going to be like, even if you're like mad at me at the moment, or it's mine, I'm going to be like that. Look, this, huh? Yeah. I'm, that's what I'm going to do. And you're going to stand right there. And I'm going to throw it down at the Lord. This is my, this, this is my church. I'm a part of it. And you're going to do the same with me. Don't get me wrong. You're going to turn and be like, that's John. There he is. We did that. Lord, we made him that way. This is, this is our pride and joy before the Lord. Our crowns before the Lord. And it's this crown that gets taken off and handed to him and said, I know it's not enough, but this is it. This is all that I have and it's yours. It's yours, Lord. This is my crown of boasting and I'm proud of you. 
That's what this means. That's what he's writing to them. He's going, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of who you are. You're our hope. You're our joy. And you're my pride. I'm, I'm proud of you. I'm, I love you. And, and I, am, I am assured that I have done well because of you. All your bumps and bruises and trials and difficulties and all the little errors and all the little things that make us who we are as a church, all of those little things, I'm proud of them. All of them. Proud of them. Pride is not negative in this sense. On the same subject in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul writes, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain. We saw that up in uh, chapter, chapter 2, that Paul knows how to live a life that is not in vain. And that vanity is not based on, a life that is not in vain is not based on the actions of other people, but is rather testified to and proved out by other people, but not, not based on their actions. That Paul is confident in what they did and how they lived. He says, I am what I am, and that his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. This is the pride he's talking about. The pride that God has done something. And that I got to be a part of it. That's the pride he's talking about. Who's our pride? The fact that God has done something and I've been a part of it. And that's why when I get to heaven, I'm going to be able to lay the crowns at his feet. Because I know he did it. I know he did it. I know he's the one that labored and did the work. And I know that I got to be a part of it and he used my work. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29. His boasting, Paul's boasting is not in his skill but in God's working through him. So when he says that you are a crown of boasting, when he says that to the Thessalonians, he's talking about what God has done in them and what God has done in us. And when I say to you, Sovereign Grace, that you are a a crown of boasting for me, I'm talking about what I've seen God do in us, what I've seen him do in us and in our hearts and in our lives. And that's why this is so powerful our crowns will one day be tested and measured just a list of scriptures from first corinthians and second corinthians alone gives you that first corinthians fifteen ten, chapter 3 verse 11 through 4 11 through 15 chapter 4 verses 1 through 5 chapter 5 verse 5 chapter 9 verses 5 through 8 and then second corinthians 5 verse 10 all talk about how our crowns will be judged and measured, and tested, and refined. Jesus will return. Jesus will return, and these crowns will be laid at his feet. And those of us who have trusted in him find salvation and joy and life eternal. And those who don't find judgment and damnation. This truth that Jesus is coming back 
and that our crowns will be tested ought to want, ought to make us want everybody in this kind of community. It ought to make us want everybody in this kind of place. It ought to make us angry that people are divided from this kind of place. It ought to make us angry that, that there are places that pretend to be this kind of place. That there are country clubs and, and groups that try to take the place of the church. It ought to fuel us to give us drive to greater evangelism and to deeper relationships. Relationships that hurt, but hurt good. You know what I mean? Relationships that hurt well. It ought to drive us to call each other brother and sister and, and ache when we don't see each other and long to be apart. Indeed, Paul concludes this couple verses by saying, For you are our glory and joy. And I want to end today by thinking about that. Again, I told you that we weren't going to get through verses 1 through 5. The, I want to end today by thinking about that. You are our glory and joy. The definition of joy, uh, of glory is an accurate representation of reality. The glory of a frog is that it's slimy and wet and hops. The glory of a man is that he's sinful and, and has two arms, two legs, walks, talks. It's the glory of the man. The glory of God is unfathomable. How great he is, how big and vast he is. Indeed, we try to encapsulate some of the glory by saying things like, the earth is his footstool and he hangs the, ours, the, the stars on nothing and he calls the oceans to come this far and no further and he tells the mountains to rise up and the seas to be made low and the valleys to be cast down. We try to capture the glory of God. I want you to see what Paul says about your church community. And from a pastor's heart, this unique community in Thessalonica. This is unique. It's a unique letter. It's unique to Thessalonica. I want you to hear my heart is the same for you as it is, as Paul's is for them. You are... Our glory. In you, I'm revealed. And likewise, we share something at such a depth and with such a nature and with such, uh, I don't know, such freedom. There's, there's nothing in the way here. There's nothing in the way. And that's, that has a negative for some people because it means you can't hide behind anything. Because there's nothing in the way. There's also nothing in the way. So who we are is revealed. Everything about us is revealed. You know I am not Superman. Even though my kids think I am. Because I tell them all the time. Daddy is Superman. He's got his cape hidden in the closet. But you know who I am. You know everything about me. I don't, we don't hide anything. You know my eccentricities. You know my difficulties. You have walked with me through them. And you have been faithful to do so. 
The glory of who I am is revealed in you. Likewise, yours is revealed in me. We make each other more real to the world. And then second, you are our joy. You are our glory and our joy. You are the source of what makes us happy. The community of faith here at Sovereign Grace has been the happiest times in my life. And yes, there are weeks when we show up and there's only 10 of us in the room. But I'm happier here than I've ever been anywhere else. You are our glory and our joy. I totally understand what Paul's talking about because of you. I get it. God has wrought in, in our hearts something totally different than the world around us. He has wrought in our hearts something totally different. And it is beautiful and powerful and life-changing. So when he writes this, I understand what he's saying. And I know we have a war that we are in the midst of against the adversary. But I also know that victory has come And that victory is borne out in our church and in our people. This is real life. And it is beautiful. And it is powerful. And it has come to us because we love Jesus and have a mutual affection for Him. And because we have a mutual affection for His mission on this earth. Oh, Father, I pray that You would be glorified in us. That as we remember your kindness to us in communion together, that it would be driven home all the more. That you are good and you are faithful and you are God and you have changed us. We love you and we trust you. Amen.